Amen. Go ahead and open back up to Mark chapter 6. And while you're turning there, I want to begin this morning with a, a story about a guy named John Fitzgerald Page. Uh, in 2010, Gawker Magazine voted John Fitzgerald Page the worst person in the world. We have a picture of, of John here. There he is. John Fitzgerald Page, 2010, was voted the worst person in the entire world, okay? And uh, he received that dubious title because of an interaction that he had with a young lady on the dating website, Match.com, okay? Match.com is a place where uh, people can, you know, type their, their stats in, I guess, their statistics, you know, their background, all that kind of stuff, their hobbies, and it matches you up with a potential date. And uh, John Fitzgerald Page had a very dysfunctional interaction on that website with a young lady that, that wishes to remain anonymous, and this is what she writes. So I winked at this guy on Match, and I should have known better considering his screen name was Ivy League Alumni. He responded to me with the following email. This is John's email to this lady. Here it is. Quote, hello. I live in a 31-story high-rise condo right in the middle of the Atlanta nightlife district. Do you ever come to this area of town to shop, go out, visit, explore? I went to an Ivy League school, the University of Pennsylvania, for my undergraduate degree in economics and my graduate degree in management. Where did you go to school? What activities do you currently participate in to stay in shape? Oh, it gets better, folks. Just hold on. <laughs> you can't make this stuff up. <laughs> I work out four times a week at LA Fitness. Do you exercise regularly? I am six foot tall, 185 pounds. What about yourself? I am truly sorry if this sounds rude, impolite, or downright crass, but I have been deceived before by inaccurate representations. So I prefer someone to be upfront and honest upon initial contact. I do corporate finance for companies like Bath and Body Works, Victoria's Secret. Do you enjoy any of our stores? Do you have any other recent pictures you care to share? I have many others of myself if you care to see them. <laughs> Regards, John. Well, anyway, this lady gets this email in her inbox, right? And obviously, she was a little bit turned off by the whole thing. And so she, she wrote back a message that says, sorry, I don't think we're a good match, okay? Just kind of cut it off there and, and stop the bleeding. Well, a very angry and rejected John Fitzgerald Page sent her another email. And this is what he said. I think you forgot how this works. You hit on me, and therefore you have to impress me and pass my criteria and standards, not the other way around. Six pictures of just your head and your inability to answer a simple question lets me know one thing. You are not in shape. I'm a personal trainer on the side. In fact, I'm heading to the gym in 26 minutes. <laughs> so the next time you meet a guy of my caliber, instead of trying to turn it around, just get to the gym. I will even give you one free training session so you don't blow it with the next guy you talk to on match who is an Ivy League grad, a Mensa member, can bench, squat, leg press over 1,200 pounds, has had lunch with the Secretary of Defense, has an MBA from the top school in the country, lives in a high-rise in the Atlanta condo district, drives a Beamer convertible, has been in 14 major motion pictures, was in Jezebel's best dressed, and was rated an 8.9 on the website, hot or not. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right. There aren't any more of those guys around. Regards, John. Now, 
we can all see why John Fitzgerald Page was voted the worst person in the world. You know, I would vote for the universe, okay? Because this guy's a total tool, right? He is a total tool. But the question is this, how did he get that way? What in the world makes a person act this way and treat other people this way? Now, the answer may surprise you because it's actually codependency. It's codependency. John Fitzgerald Page, I know, he comes across like a very self-confident person that doesn't need anyone else's approval. But that is only because when it comes down to it, deep inside, John Fitzgerald Page is a desperately insecure person. You know, arrogant and cocky people always are. They're desperately insecure people. And that is because people that are, are really, really insecure about what other people think about them try to make themselves appear bigger and better than they really are. And this is basically just a defense mechanism in their soul, you know. You see this in all of life, you know, when, when you're in the animal kingdom and you see you know, some animal that's, it's, you know, it's really defenseless and it's weak and feeble, what it will do is it will bow up and, and pretend to be bigger and scarier than it actually is in order to ward off a predator. I mean, for example, uh, if a snake is chasing a toad, the toad ain't got no defenses at all, okay? It's not like he's going to duke it out. But what he can do, and this is interesting, I found this out this week, this blew me away, a toad can actually inflate himself three times the size that he normally is. And when a toad does that, it's impossible for the snake to swallow him. And listen, human beings do the same thing. We feel so insecure, so inadequate. We feel so much internal shame and guilt that we bow up and we pretend to be much bigger and better than we actually are. It's a defense mechanism to protect our souls. And that, that's why when you, when you go to Chili's, and you see the guy at the bar, you know, who's drinking like the really tall, like Guinness draft beer, and he's got a tribal band tattoo, and he's all powered up and bowed up. He looks like he's strong and rough and rugged on the outside. But if you talk to that guy and you say, dude, tell me about your home life growing up, he's probably going to break down. Because that's a defense mechanism to protect people from hurting him. That's why it's been said by Larry Crabb, famous Christian psychologist, he said this. This is a nugget and a half. All of us have layers of fear wrapped around the real us. They are defense mechanisms. How many of us is that described this morning? You've been hurt somewhere in your past, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. And what happened was, you were hurt so bad that scar tissue developed around your very heart. And it became almost impossible to know you, let alone love you. Layers of fear, imposturing, in performance as a defense mechanism to protect your very soul. Because listen, the root of all codependent behavior is a desire for unmet approval. That's all it is. When we were in the Garden of Eden, created in the image of God, we had all the approval we ever needed. We had all the acceptance we ever needed. We were good, the Bible calls us. We were holy, perfect, upright. But when we fell into sin, that became a need our perfect approval in God and Christ, excuse me, and God at the time, was removed, and that acceptance all of a sudden became a need for acceptance, a need for approval. We became desperately insecure people after the fall of mankind. And now we try all kinds of things to compensate and to cover that shame and that inadequacy. 
And the gospel, the good news that John Fitzgerald Page lived by was this. If I can just make myself successful enough and drive a Beamer and live in an Atlanta condo, then I'll be a person worth loving. If I can just bench, squat, leg press 1,200 pounds, you know, a small truck, if I can just do that and be rated an 8.9 on the website, hot or not, if I can just do that, then people can never reject me. That's the gospel he lived by. And that is why the moment he experienced just a little bit of rejection, he lashed out. Because it reflected negatively upon his own self-worth. And listen, this kind of like classic hypersensitivity, this is a classic sign and symptom of a codependent person. And that is because we began to see last week, codependent people end up treating people in one of two ways. You end up treating people like either obstacles or vehicles. Obstacles or vehicles. I'm either a people pleaser and I'm going to use you to feel better about myself, to cover my shame, to cover my self-worth, all those kind of things. I'm either using you or I'm separating from you so you can never hurt me again. I'm going to lack transparency because I don't want you adding to my shame. I'm going to not confess anything to you or tell you anything because I can't handle being rejected by you. I'm going to avoid you. It makes you turn people into obstacles or vehicles. You're either a people avoider or a people pleaser two sides of the spectrum when it comes to codependency. That's exactly what was going on in the heart of John Fitzgerald Page. He desperately needed her approval, and when he didn't get it, in fact, when he got buffed off just a little bit, he turned, and he was provoked, and he lashed out. And because she made him feel insignificant, he returned the favor and wanted to hurt her back. This is a classic symptom of codependency. Now, this is so important to note. This is so important because, you know, many of us think of codependency in just one way. We think of the person that's the doormat who, like, picks everyone up at the airport at, you know, three in the morning and can never say no and always going out of their way to brown nose. We think that's the only type of codependent person. And so maybe you were here last week and you heard the sermon and you heard me talk about, you know, people pleasing and being an approval junkie. And you thought this, just be honest, you thought, this does not relate to me at all because I don't even like people. You know, maybe that was your heart. Maybe you're like, you know what? I, not only do I not struggle with people pleasing and codependency, I actually, I try my best to stay away from people, you know? In fact, you know, that's why I live in a gated community where the houses are three acres apart, you know, and I only come into town twice a week, you know, once for church on Sunday, I sit on the back row, I slip in at the end of the service, you know, and I slip out before anyone could talk to me. And, and then I go to Walmart, you know, at midnight on Friday night, and I use the self-checkout line because I'm not coming in contact with anyone. And so maybe you're thinking, I, I, this does not relate to me, Jeff. Codependency? I don't even like people. I hate people. But here's the deal. Even a hermit is dominated by the fear of man because he goes out of his way to avoid people. Can you feel me? Check this out. If you run from rejection, whomever you avoid is actually determining your actions and is therefore your controller. So if you, if you fly into Ted Kaczynski Unabomber syndrome, you know, and you, you develop like this mountain man complex, which you can get your own TV show now on TLC, okay? It's all about codependent mountain men that live out in the middle of nowhere by themselves. But if that's you, you may say, I don't even like people, dude. Here's the deal. People are controlling your behavior. And I don't know how many times, it's ironic to me, I don't know how many times in the church I've heard someone say this about another Christian, usually a Christian man. They're like, dude, that dude over there, 
He does not fear man at all. He tells exactly like it is. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He calls a spade a spade. You, you know people like this, right? And they're like, they have no fear of man. They say exactly what's on their mind. And I'm like, yeah, that's the problem, okay? <laughs> that's the problem. The reality is this. That person may come across very abrasive and rude, but he, here's the deal. That person is so dominated by a fear of man that they are terrified of getting close to anyone at all. And so they use rudeness and abrasiveness as a buffer to protect their own heart. And so they come across like someone that's not a yes man who just basically tells it like it is. But inside, that's a desperately insecure person. The hermit is a desperately insecure person. And that's because the opposite of the fear of man is not hating your fellow man, it's loving your fellow man. The opposite of people-pleasing is not like you just reject everyone and you're rude to everyone. The opposite of people-pleasing is to genuinely love your fellow human being, to draw near in love, and to walk through this life in community. And so the reality is this, rude people are codependent to the extreme. And listen, their rudeness is like a codependent preemptive strike is what it is. It's like, I'm going to reject you before you have a chance of rejecting me. And so codependent people aren't just doormats. They're also people who are desperately rude and abrasive and they stiff arm others and keep others at arm's length to protect their own soul. And listen, they're still controlled by people. Hermits are still controlled by people. And so the fear of man, it causes us to turn people into either obstacles or vehicles. People pleasing or people avoidance. Two sides of the same spectrum when it comes to codependency. And listen, if we were honest, if we were honest, which rarely ever happens in church, but if we were honest this morning, we would admit, we would admit that many of us are just like John Fitzgerald Page. We go through life with this like chronic low-grade guilt, kind of like a low-grade fever that's, fever that's there all the time. We go through life with this chronic low-grade guilt, and it causes us to use other people instead of loving them, and it bears all kinds of like really nasty fruit in our lives. I mean, first of all, it, it makes us uber-defensive. It makes us hyper-vigilant to always, you know, defend ourselves and our speech is constantly laced with self-justifying comments about how you know valid we are or how righteous we are you know our codependency it makes us ultra defensive and so we dig our heels in the moment anyone says anything remotely critical about us in fact you know most times they don't even have to say anything critical about us because we do a good job reading into comments that have nothing at all to do with anything with us at all, you know? We read things in ends that, that aren't even there. And, and so, you know, it's like we're so defensive, people can't even mention anything to us because we're too busy reading into things and thinking, that was a side comment directed towards me. No, it wasn't at all. It makes us ultra defensive. You know, I, I remember one time leaving my job where I work at, and uh, this is probably a year ago or so, I'm leaving, and, and, and one of the ladies that works there, she made a, a joke about me leaving early, and she goes, wow. She goes, Jeff, you're leaving at 4? She goes, I'd like to have your hours. Now, it was an innocent comment. This lady, she's a funny lady, okay? Uh, but I was having an off day. I was, having an, I was feeling very insecure. I wasn't delighting in the gospel. And so I had an out-of-body experience, okay? I did. You ever had one of those? Your brain shuts off and your heart kicks into overdrive? We tend to think that we're thinking people, people who feel, but we're really feeling people who think, okay? And so oftentimes, our emotions just come out. 
And then later on, we're like, what in the world was I thinking? That's not the point. The question is this, what in the world were you feeling? Because we are feeling people who think. We're not thinking people who feel. Are we, everything originates with your emotions and your core. You know, that's why Edwards talked about religious affections and your affections and where they're drawing you to. Anyway, we are feeling beings who think, and then we rationalize our behavior with our minds. But anyway, I have this out-of-body experience, and I basically Mount St. Helens on this lady. And I was like, do you understand how many books I read a week to prepare to step in this pulpit? And do you know my counseling load? And how many phone calls do you get at 11 at night about a family that's about to implode because of sin? And I had all these self-justifying comments about how this person only works a 9 to 5, but I'm always on the clock. And listen, I felt totally vindicated in that moment. Don't you feel vindicated when you get angry? You felt like, man... I just totally defended myself, and they have a complete picture of who I am. And they do have a complete picture of who you are. <laughs> and listen, I felt great. I got in the car, I'm driving home, and like it took like three and a half minutes. And I'm like, Jeff, what the heck are you doing? I'm like, you're sick, man. You're a sick person, you know? I'm like, Eckert, you are jacked up. Because basically, what the heck would, would cause you to say that to a, to a person, you know? So the next day I came in, I apologized profusely, and I asked for forgiveness, and and I'm sure she was probably like, man, you are jacked up, dude. <laughs> She's probably thinking that. And she's like, you're the pastor over there? And it's like, yeah, I am, and I, and I need therapy, you know? <laughs> Seriously. I, I, I go to therapy. Listen, I think everyone should go to therapy. I'm not kidding. I really do. I think everyone should go to therapy. We live in a fallen world. We're sinners who are raised by sinners. We work for sinners. We work with sinners. We're married to sinners. Why not get counseling from a sinner, right? A therapist, right? <laughs> it's good to talk through things. But yeah, I had this ultra defensiveness. I couldn't take any, even like a joke, I'm reading into it. Like, because this is what I heard when she made that, that, that playful comment. I heard, you're lazy, you don't deserve to exist. You're not acceptable. That's what I heard. That's not what they said. But that's what I heard because I was desperately insecure. But our, our codependency, it makes us ultra defensive. It also makes us perfectionists. Any perfectionists in here? Raise your hand perfectly, okay? Uh, any perfectionists in here? See? Very few of you raised your hand because, listen, perfectionists, actually, they, they are so bogged down about doing everything perfect that they procrastinate and drag their feet about everything. Did you know perfectionism breeds procrastination? Because why in the world should I even try to do it unless I can do it perfectly the first time? And if I can't do it perfectly the first time, well, then it's not even worth even trying. And so our perfectionism makes us bog down in all the details because we have to micromanage everything because unless I have a perfect performance the very first time around and I don't leave any room for any critique or criticism, then it's not even worth doing. And that's why they never do anything. Perfectionism leads to procrastination. And perfectionists often lack creativity and inspiration because they are so fearful of receiving any sort of feedback about their performance because they're so insecure, it locks them down with fear and they never take any risks at all. Codependency makes us procrastinators. And lastly and worst of all, this is the absolute worst part of, of codependency. Codependency will actually rob us of true intimacy with other people. This is by far the worst. Codependency prevents us from having any true intimacy with other people. Because you can't have intimacy when you're always pretending. You can't have intimacy without vulnerability. And if you're always pretending... If you're always letting that scar tissue surround the real you, nobody's ever going to get to know the real you. 
And it's going to prevent you from having any sort of true, meaningful fellowship in your entire life. You're going to be the most busy, committed person in the world and have the least amount of real friendships. You'll be the guy who picks everyone up at the airport at 3 a.m., and yet you're not even going to know them, and they're not going to know you. Because in order to have true intimacy, there must be vulnerability. And listen, if you go through life, you know, keeping everything fluffy and superficial, and you play your cards close to the vest, and you never let anyone know about true prayer requests, it's always an unspoken prayer request, guess what? You'll never have your heart broken, but you'll also never enter into true intimacy with other people. C.S. Lewis said this. This is the second nugget. This is such a good nugget, man. And that's why I put like a, a whole page quote up there. He said, to love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Let's just close in prayer. <laughs> Actually, we can't yet because we haven't gotten to Jesus. If I ever, if Tommy or I ever close here without getting to Jesus, please come up and just like punch us or something, you know, hit us because... Christ is the only solution for, for our fallen dilemma and, and what makes us do what we do. Christ is sufficient. If you don't ever make yourself vulnerable, you'll never experience the joy of intimacy with other people in true community. And the worst thing you could do is go through life avoiding people, stiff-arming people, keeping everyone at arm's length. You, you will look back on your life at the end of your life when they call in hospice, you will look back and you will regret your life. In fact, I know this is the case because there's an Australian hospice nurse named Bonnie Ware. And uh, Bonnie, she's been a hospice nurse for, I don't know, countless years. And she has had an extended amount of time with people who have been given between three and 12 weeks to live. And so she's had a lot of deathbed conversations with folks where they talk about their lives, what they enjoyed, what they would do over again had they had another chance to live, and what they would have done different if they could go back and re rewind the clock. And what she said is this. She wrote a book called The, five, the Top Five Regrets of the Dying. And she listed the most common things people would change if they could do it all over again. And this, this will blow your mind. I wish I'd had the courage to live a life true to myself, not the life others expected of me. That was the most frequent things she's heard on a deathbed. Secondly, I wish I hadn't worked so hard, and she goes on to elaborate in her book, I wish I hadn't neglected my family so much. I was so driven to prove myself that I basically threw away my kids' childhood years and threw away my marriage. So I wish I hadn't worked so much. Three, I'd wish I had the courage to express my feelings. How many of us go through life not even like being close with our own parents because of something that happened a long time ago and we're just scared to pick the phone up and just tell them how we feel? Fourth, I wish I had stayed in touch with my friends. And fifth, I wish I had let myself be happier. Every single one of these top five answers is related to codependency. Every single one of them. At the end of their lives, People say this, I wish I had not been so codependent because it basically robbed me of having a happy and fruitful and pleasurable 
life. And if we were honest this morning again, many of us would confess that we're extremely codependent. And it's ruining our health. It's ruining our sanity. It's ruining our, our, our families. And I want you to know this this morning. Jesus wants so much more for your life. He does. He wants so much more for your life. Jesus came to free you from codependency. John 8, 32. If the Son will set you free, right, you'll be free indeed. If you, if you know the truth of the gospel, not only are you freed from hell and sin and condemnation, you are freed from having to use other people to feel better about yourself. You're freed from codependency. Jesus came to rescue us from the most basic issues in life that jam us up. And so Jesus came to deliver us from that chronic low-grade guilt that always says, prove yourself, prove yourself, prove yourself. Jesus came to redeem us from a world that says, hurry up and matter, hurry up and matter. What have you done for me lately? Jesus came to deliver us from that chronic feeling of, I'm a phony. I'm going to be exposed any day now for being a phony. I can't share any real prayer requests because I don't want someone thinking I'm a phony. Jesus came to deliver us from finding our self-worth and how other people view us. He came to set us free from all that. Jesus came to set us free from all sin, especially the sin of codependency. Now the question is this, how can you conquer codependency? How can we overcome it? Well, Mark chapter 6 is all about conquering codependency. And uh, if you're joining us for the first time this morning, um, like I said, we began a new series last week called Conquering Codependency because Mark chapter 6 is all about rejection. It's all about dealing with rejection. Mark chapter 6 is three back-to-back-to-back stories about Jesus getting rejected, first of all, then the disciples get rejected, and then John the Baptist is rejected. Three different stories about rejection and how we're to respond when we're rejected. And so Mark chapter 6 has a lot to teach us about co-dependency. And as you might recall from last week, in the immediate context of Mark chapter 6, the disciples and Jesus have just left Nazareth. And in Nazareth, which is Jesus' hometown, Jesus has been rejected by his own people for the second time. We talked about that last week. The people in Jesus' hometown, where he was from, um, the people that knew him best, the people he played Little League with growing up, thought that he was a liar, he was a charlatan, and he wasn't the Messiah. In fact, they were so passionate that he wasn't the Messiah that they actually tried to kill him in Luke chapter 4. And so the people that Jesus was closest to, that knew him the best and his family the best, actually thought, you're nuts, you're crazy, you're a liar, and you deserve to die. And we talked about this last week. That rejection could have devastated Christ because he was 100% God, but he was also 100% man. He was tempted in all things, just like we are, yet he didn't sin. And so that could have been a temptation to despair, being rejected. And so Jesus and his disciples, they're going through the towns and villages, even Jesus' hometown, and they're rejected time after time after time. In fact, they have a bullseye on their backs. People are trying to take them out, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. They're trying to kill Jesus. Everywhere they go, Jesus is rejected. They're in constant danger. And now, in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, you see a shift take place. And what happens is this. Jesus is going to send his disciples out by themselves, two by two. Look at verse 7. It's in your bulletin. And Jesus called the twelve 
And he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Stop right there. Let's pump the brakes. Jesus just got rejected again, second time in his hometown. Now he says, I got, a, I got an idea here. I want to cover more ground, so I'm going to send each of you out, and I'm staying back. And what's trippy is this. This is trippy to me. Jesus tells them ahead of time that, hey, by the way, you're going to be rejected and persecuted. They're going into this whole thing knowing that they're going to experience rejection. Jesus is not going to protect them from being rejected. There's not a holy halo around them or us, right? In fact, in one of the parallel gospels, in Matthew's gospel, it talks about the same account. And Jesus gave them a little warning. He said, behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Not very comforting. I'm staying here. You're going to go out two by two. And by the way, uh, I'm going to feed you basically to the wolves. You're going out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Jesus tells them ahead of time that they're going to experience opposition and rejection. Now, that's not even the craziest part. The craziest part is what Jesus says next in Mark chapter 6. Because instead of separating from people and keeping a safe distance, instead of doing like, you know, renting a plane and doing sky riding with the gospel, like, hey, come to Jesus, you know what I'm saying? Let's keep a safe distance. We'll all get pilot's licenses and we'll get some of that smoke and we'll go up there and... Jesus says this. He says, no, no. I don't want you separating from people. He says, I want you to draw near to people and be vulnerable. You're going to be rejected. I'm sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. And by the way, make sure you keep yourself vulnerable and your heart open. Look at what he says in verses 8 and 9. This blows me away. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, a big stick. No grenades, okay? No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. Verse 9, but to wear sandals, not combat boots, but sandals, and not to wear two tunics, which means you better find a place that has a washer and dryer because you can't have any extra clothes, okay? One tunic, sandals, nothing else. Now, here's the deal. Jesus, I, I don't think, I think sometimes we read the Bible so fast that we, we miss how this should hit us. Because think about this for a second. Jesus is saying this, I'm sending you out like lambs in the midst of some very dangerous people who are going to reject you. They're going to pull you into synagogues. And here's the deal. When they reject you, make sure you don't bring any extra supplies at all. And that means no food, no luggage, no overnight bag, not even a hip pouch, right? Back in the 80s, none of that stuff. No money, only one tunic, and most of all, no Jesus. I'm not going with you guys. So he basically forbids them from being self-sufficient and closing themselves off like an island. He says, I want you to go in to a very hostile area, and I want you to stay vulnerable. Because here's the deal. We cannot be ambassadors for Christ. We cannot be salt and light unless we actually make ourselves accessible to people. Aloof Christians aren't going to have any impact in a lost and dying world. And so it sounds good to separate rather than integrate, but it's actually the opposite of what Jesus commanded us to do. We're to make ourselves and keep ourselves vulnerable. And so Jesus commands his disciples to stay vulnerable in the face of a hostile world just like Jesus was. Now, this advice would have sounded crazy to the disciples. I mean, if I was there and my teacher has been rejected everywhere we've gone, and he's been, he's been almost murdered a couple times. And he tells me he's sending me out without him, with one other dude, okay? 
and he tells me ahead of time I'm going to be rejected, this is how I'm going out. I'm going out with, a, you know, the combat gear on, you know what I'm saying? I'm passing out tracks. I'll have a little dispenser, like, whoop, you know, like RoboCop, dude. But Jesus said, don't do the one on the right, do the one over here. That's who you're going right there. Little fluffy lamb, and you're just going to go into the, you know, the lion's den. That's how Jesus commands his people to go out. And he says, listen, I know it's going to be a temptation for you to isolate yourself and protect yourself and shut down emotionally and relationally, but here's the deal. Don't do that. Stay vulnerable. Make the people that you're trying to reach care for you, cook for you, take you in. Go into a city with no extra supplies and rely upon your Father in heaven to open the hearts of people. This would have took great faith. This is beyond me. This is like miracle, mountain-moving faith like Diane talked about. This is like crazy faith, okay? And Jesus tells them, he says, listen, there's going to come a time you're going to be rejected. And when you are rejected, this is what you're supposed to do. Look at verse 10. Here's the instructions when they experience rejection. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. In other words, you're going to come into a city there was no hotels back then, no Hampton Inn with free breakfast, none of that. You had to rely upon the hospitality of strangers to, to actually provide for your everyday needs. Jesus says when you enter a village and you enter a house, stay there at that house. Don't depart from there. Verse 11, but if any place, any tapas in the Greek, literally, any village as a whole, not just a house, but an entire village, if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you. They will not listen to you. The village will not listen to you. Then do this when you leave. Shake the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. Now, in other words, when you experience rejection, and it's going to come, shake the dust off your feet. Or as Jay-Z said, the rapper, brush that dirt off your shoulder, Okay. That's what it is. Don't give any negative feedback a second thought. Just slough it off. Now, the question is this. How in the world can we do that, Jesus? <laughs> Listen, it's easy for you to say that because you're God and you have amazing quiet times. My quiet times lately have been kind of dry. And so I don't know if I have the capacity just to brush it off. I mean, because listen, dealing with rejection and criticism and slander and misrepresentation, that hurts. Sticks and stones break our bones, and words do too. I mean, the book of Proverbs says they're like sharp swords. That's how it talks about speech and our tongues. And so listen, words can hurt. I mean, if you think about the last time someone rejected you, even if it was just verbally, you probably walked around for a couple days numb. And I can remember times in my life when I, I've heard hard things, it, it sunk into me. I mean, I just walk around with like this low-level irritability. Because words can hurt. And so how in the world can Jesus tell his disciples, listen, when you're rejected, slough it off, don't take it personal. Well, the answer is this. The answer, the key, the secret is found back in verse 7. Because back in verse 7, something very important took place that will actually buoy up the disciples in times of rejection. Look at verse 7 again with us. He called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Let's stop right there. Um, John MacArthur has written a study Bible. 
and, and if you're new to the faith and you're thinking to yourself, man, how, how do you study the Bible kind of like more in depth? What, what should you get? What should be the first resource I should get? The John MacArthur Study Bible, I think, is awesome. It's excellent. It's great for a first-time studier and student of God's Word. And in the footnote of this chapter, this is what MacArthur writes about this whole sending out by Jesus. He says, the form of the Greek verb, send them out, indicates that Jesus individually commissioned each pair to go out as his representatives. Now, let's put that in church terms. Jesus had a special service where he brought up all the disciples, two by two, laid hands on them, commissioned them, and said, you're my ambassadors, you're my disciples, you're going to go out and speak in my name. I mean, they may even got certificates that printed out on the printer, and they, Jesus signed his name, Jesus, you know, uh, Messiah, you know, whatever it was. They were commissioned personally by Christ before they went out. And that commissioning, that prior declaration over their lives would be the way that they could make it through the most malicious type of gossip and slander and criticism. When they experienced rejection and, and people said, listen, you don't speak for God. You're a charlatan. In fact, 11 out of the 12 apostles were killed in the line of ministry. Only the apostle John died of natural causes. Every single one of the other apostles died in the face of missionary endeavors. And the way they were able to persevere, the way the apostle Peter could be crucified upside down because he did not see fit to die the same way that Jesus died, the way that Peter could see his wife be crucified before him, and he, he told her, remember the Lord. That's what he told her. She was being crucified. This is church history. Peter said, remember the Lord to his wife while she's being crucified. Then he's crucified upside down. The way they could persevere in the face of rejection is that Jesus declared over their lives, you're my disciples, you're my, you're, you're my ambassadors. You are my representatives on earth. And so when you experience rejection, don't find your identity in what other people think about you. Find your identity in what I have already said about you. And friends, listen, the same is true of us. This text is the same as it is 2,000 years ago as it is today because, listen, we're just like the disciples. Jesus is gone. We're here all alone. He's laid his authority upon us. We have his Holy Spirit. But in this world, we, we don't look over and see Jesus next to us. It'd be a lot easier to evangelize, wouldn't it? It'd be a lot easier when you came home if Jesus was there in your bedroom to pray with you when someone said something very unkind about you because of your stand for Christ. It'd be a whole lot easier, but we are just like the disciples living in a hostile world. And listen, it's the, the prior declaration over our lives because of Christ, whereby we know that we are perfect, we are blameless, we are lovable. The gospel tells us we are lovable because of Christ, because of the gospel. Because of Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, we are completely acceptable and worthy of love. I mean, one of the perks... And we don't think about the many perks of being a Christian, but one of the perks of being a Christian, listen, nobody can ever tell you that you're worthless again. Because if, if the God of heaven saw fit to die for you, then nobody else can tell you that you're worthless and you don't matter. I mean, the cross has settled that fact once and for all because the cross tells us that we're so precious to God that he would die for us. And listen, the love of God is not a result of the cross. The love of God precedes the cross. We can't look at the cross and say, well, Jesus died for us. Now God has to love us. No. 
John 3.16 says the love of God existed before the cross. It's the love of God that sent Jesus to the cross because God's love, it's unexplainable. That he would find us so precious in his sight that he would give his only begotten son, as Spurgeon would say. We look at the cross and we would think that God loves us more than he loves Jesus because of what he put his son through. And the cross tells us this. If God thinks you're worth dying for, then who the heck cares what anyone else says? It doesn't matter if my business is a failure. It doesn't matter if I'm wildly successful in life. Because at the cross, my self-worth is fixed forever. Your self-worth is nailed to the cross. And the more we truly believe that, the more we truly understand, guys, how much God loves us. That's all we do here every Sunday. You live in a world of law. You live in a world of legalism. Everything's performance-based. You come here Sunday to hear once again the declaration over your lives that it is finished, that God is well-pleased with you because of Christ. Through your faith, God, listen, God is well-pleased with you if you have faith in Christ. But the more we, we believe that, the more we'll be freed from codependency because a lot of us are Christians, but we don't fully believe the depth of God's love for us. And codependency is a direct result of not understanding how much God loves you. I'm not Joel Osteen, so I'm going to prove it, okay? 1 John 4, listen to this. So we have come to know and to believe. I don't just know it, bro. I believe it. The love that God has for us, God is love. And whoever abides in love, whoever gets along with people and loves them, doesn't use them, whoever understands how much God loves them, guess what? They abide in love and, and, and God abides in them. And listen, here it is, verse 19. We love God and we love others. Why? Because why? He first loved us. 1 John 4 is a primer of how in the world can we begin to love God others how, how in the world can we even begin to love God how in the world if you're someone that's like man I just see the, the the love meter on my heart is always petering out I don't know why I don't love God more I'm going to tell you why because you don't really understand how much God loves you and if you think God is like this aloof ogre in the sky that basically tolerates you because of Jesus instead of a God who loves you and sent Jesus they're on the same page it's not Jesus saying, now please accept him now, God, because of everything I did. It's God telling the son, I'm going to send you because we love humanity so much that when we fall, we're going to pick them back up. When you understand how much God loves you, it will free you to love other people and to love God. It's a response. We're not like the sun. We're like the moon. We reflect God's love. And the source of God's love through you is God's love for you. That's where it comes from. And so how do you stop using people and treating them like obstacles and vehicles and you start loving people? It's by starting to understand how much God loves you. It's like soaking in the gospel like a tea bag that's steeping. You've got to push the gospel deeper into the unevangelized parts of your soul. Now, here, here's the hard part. As Christians, not only do we have our conscience but we have God's Holy Spirit who opens the word of God and illuminates it. And guess what? We understand we're not keeping any of this. Even with the power of the Holy Spirit, everything's tainted and jacked up in this life that we do. Every day, we sin in thought, word, and deed. And I know some people have a hard time with that, but listen, that's the truth. The flesh is never rehabilitated in this life. You never get rid of the flesh in this life. You will wake up every day and battle with the flesh. 
and the flesh lusts against the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit lusts and battles against the flesh. So it makes you do what you don't want to do. And so we sin every day. Even the good things we do are just jacked up and tainted. And what happens is this. Our conscience, it, it just, it, it, it critiques us every day. It pricks us every day. And what happens is, is Satan comes along and says, you know what, you're not real. You're not real at all. Dude, you still do the same things you did before you were a Christian, pretty much. I mean, do you understand how you still talk to your wife after all these years since you came to Christ? The Satan loves to get in our head and to kind of provoke us to despair because, listen, Satan's main temptation for the believer is not giving you false assurance. His main temptation is to make you think that God loathes you. He accuses you. Look, look at what Revelation 12 says. I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, salvation, power, the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. That's the devil. Who, what does he do? Accuses them day and night before our God. That's what Satan does. He says, you're, are you serious, Jeff? Are you really going to try to like plead that you're a Christian after everything you still do? Satan tempts us to despair, one of the old hymns says. And the hard part, here's the hard part, guys. Satan's right. He tells us of our guilt because we still sin. And so we, we do still sin every day in thought, word, deed. Satan is right. And therefore, redoubling our efforts and trying harder to be a better Christian is not the solution to extinguishing the fiery darts of Satan. The solution to extinguishing can you go back to that slide, Andrew? The, the solution to extinguishing the, the fiery darts of Satan in Revelation 12 is this. Look at verse 11 in Revelation chapter 12. And they conquered him how? By the blood of the, of the lamb. So how, how do you, what are you supposed to do when you feel like just numb all day, every day? You've been saved 20 years, and when you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you're like, dude, I'm still not keeping any of this. How do you extinguish that pricking of conscience? You conquer it through the blood of Christ. You push the gospel deeper into the unevangelized parts of your soul. Because again, the power of your love will be in direct proportion to your devotional life. And anything else will cause you to burn out. And the reason that we, we don't preach guilt here to motivate our, our, our members is because guilt is a terrible motivator because guilt will always remain. Even the best performance on your best day will be tinged with guilt and sin because we sin in thought, word, and deed. And so we have to fight off Satan's accusations and, and, and quench his fiery darts with the gospel. And here's the deal. The more we grasp the gospel, the less we will act like John Fitzgerald Page. In fact, I would say this, the more you understand how much God loves you, the less you will be tempted to treat people like obstacles and vehicles. It's, it's kind of like, it's kind of like the end of Return of the Jedi. Any Star Wars fans in here? Okay. Did you guys know that the gospel is actually in Star Wars? This is awesome. Because listen, the one-way love of Luke Skywalker actually liberates his codependent dad, Darth Vader. This is it. All, it's all, go back and watch it this afternoon, okay? Um, the one-way love and grace shown from Luke Skywalker liberates Darth Vader from his codependency. Because listen, Darth Vader, classic codependent. I mean, he's this very hardened dude that treats people like obstacles, okay? And he doesn't allow anyone to get close to him, not even his own family, not even his son Luke Skywalker and Princess Leia. He basically, he, 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 he separates himself from anyone that's ever cared about him and he even kills people that get in his way. So Darth Vader, classic codependent, okay? But if you remember, at the end of Return of the Jedi, 
okay? Darth Vader has this, this miraculous change of heart, and he lifts up the evil emperor with the lightning bolts and all that, and he throws him over the side of the, the building or whatever, and he flies down and blows up or whatever. It's kind of crazy. I don't know what's happening there. But um, Darth Vader kills the wicked emperor, and as Darth Vader is laying there dying, he says to Luke, he says, help me take off my mask. Remember this part? And Luke says, but you're going to die. And Darth Vader says this. He says, nothing can stop that now. Just once, let me look on you with my own eyes. And y'all know what happens. When Luke takes that mask off, everyone gasps, right? Because it's all been a charade. It's a farce. I mean, you discover behind this rough and rugged dude that like basically just kills anyone that messes up is this weak and fragile old man playing a harmonica. You, you look at him and you're like, sorry, that's what it looks like to me whenever I see this. Looks like the House of Blues or something, man. Um, but, like, you discover it's all been a charade. What was behind this, like, rugged dude with a tribal band, you know, around his arm? What was behind all that? A weak, a frail little dude who was desperately looking for love. And listen, it was his insecure heart that longed for affection that actually drove him to the dark side of the force. And we learn Darth Vader was just a persona. It was just a mask to protect him from the outside world. Behind that, that, that exterior was Anakin Skywalker, who was desperately looking for power and respectability and self-worth. And the only thing that could get through to Vader wasn't the law. It wasn't beating Vader up so bad that he finally gave in and said, okay, I'll change. It was the one-way love of Luke Skywalker. That said, I I know there's good in you. I believe in you. He would not let go. And that one-way love and grace is what transformed Vader back into Anakin Skywalker. And I'll say this. The same is true of us. We're all Darth Vader. We use people like obstacles and vehicles. And only the one-way love of God can turn us back into the image of God, whereby we love people and we seek community with people and we seek to serve people. It's only by meditating and grasping the love of God where we see the God of heaven who's not codependent. He didn't come to earth to feel better about himself. He could have stayed in heaven. The fact that he came to earth is his grace and mercy. God owed us nothing, but the fact that God doesn't need us, but that God wants us, when you really understand that, it's going to liberate you from codependency.